0: Christians Choose to Lose My dad taught me that lesson. He never said those words to me. Instead, he lived those words. Back in the mid-1980s, my dad was one of two major vice presidents at a major marketing firm. The other major vice president, he went on to make hundreds of millions of dollars, and he ended up buying his own Major League Baseball team. As for my dad, his wife left him, and our family savings went out the door. And soon, as instability at home mixed with instability at work, my dad's professional aspirations crumbled just as decades-long health problems set in. Now, let me be clear. My dad did not choose those losses. What he did is he chose to embrace those losses because he committed to his life's primary mission, which suddenly became clearer to him than ever before my dad raised his two young boys on his own, me from the age of seven and my brother from the age of three. At the pivotal moment of his life, my dad did not chase after old dreams. He didn't try to recoup his losses. Instead, he answered a call and assumed a duty given to him out of love. He was not a Christian because he happened to lose. His Christian identity was forged through his sacrifices. And sacrifice is choosing to lose on purpose. While we were growing up, we witnessed some of this but we, wis- we witnessed it, not necessarily while we were awake, but during the hours when we slept. For years and years, very, very early in the morning, our next-door neighbor would come over and drink her coffee in our living room because my dad would go to the early morning Mass at our parish before my brother and I woke up. My dad would go up to the altar, and he would receive the Eucharist, our Lord who gives himself body and blood and loses himself to us. By the time my brother and I came downstairs to get ready for school, there was my dad in the kitchen, breakfast prepared, lunches being packed, the Eucharist residing within him. All throughout the day, in millions of small acts of love, my dad translated that Eucharistic gift into his own sacrifices. He found himself in losing himself in just that way. That is what it means to be a Christian. To choose to lose. To sacrifice. To lose on purpose. Now, as I've gotten older, I've reflected, of course, more and more on my dad, and I've discovered him in a way hidden in a surprising place. I've discovered the witness of my father hidden in the figure of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist has long mesmerized me. This is the guy who leaves the gospel scene saying, He must increase. I must decrease. John the Baptist lost on purpose. He chose to lose. Now, I want to spend a bit of time thinking together about John the Baptist, but we got to ask a couple questions as we get started with that. What exactly did this guy have to lose? What was he decreasing from? Before we meet John the Baptist fully in the gospel, he has been a man who struck out on his own. He wasn't a major vice president of a major marketing firm or a business leader or anything like that. But he was something of an entrepreneur. He went out and started his own ministry. He wasn't adorned in fine clothing. He wore a hair shirt, wrapped himself in a rope, ate locusts and honey. But the people from the capital city of Jerusalem and all throughout Judea, in all those places surrounding the River Jordan, they flocked to John the Baptist, hearing him echo the words of the prophets. And all these people submitted themselves to the work of John the Baptist's hands. He was a man In the center of all that action, his voice was the one that was listened to. People came to him. Now, the evangelist, St. Luke, does a really curious thing at the beginning of the third chapter of his gospel. The first two chapters you may remember are the infancy narratives when Jesus and a little bit of John the Baptist, it documents their childhood. But the third chapter is where the adult ministry of Jesus begins in earnest. And John the Baptist is the figure that leads to that. But the curious thing that St. Luke does is before he names John the Baptist, he ends up naming a whole bunch of other people too. And for a long time, it seemed to me, it's like one of those transitional paragraphs that I tell my students never to write, just kind of setting the time and the place and clearing his throat. But after some further reflection and instruction, I came to see that a bit differently. These other names before we see and meet John the Baptist as an adult. I want to share those with you. The beginning of chapter three goes like this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, And Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now we get to John, and pretty soon we're going to hear from John. But who are all these other people? Some of the names probably familiar to us, but not necessarily all of them. Who are these people? These are the power brokers of the first century. Those who hold control and power in this little strip of land in the time of Jesus. Tiberius Caesar, the emperor. What kind of man is he? He's the kind of man who lavishes worship and praise on his predecessors, teaching the people to treat them as gods. Why? So that he eventually will be worshiped as a god. Pontius Pilate, the governor of this area, this outpost for the Roman Empire. What kind of man is he? He's the kind of man that only wants to curry favor with Caesar. He wants to remain a friend of Caesar at all costs so that he can get a promotion. Herod, Philip, Lysanias, sons of the elder Herod, his kingdom broken into fours, they oversee a portion of that. Herod the younger, he's a man who indulges his passions. He's a hedonist, he loves pleasure and will do whatever it takes at any time to bring himself delight. As for Philip and Lysanias, one of them is an ineffective ruler, doesn't care about his responsibilities, just goes with the flow, cannot be bothered. As for the other, hooked on foreign delicacies, loves the foreign customs, the things that are exotic. Finally, you have Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, Annas had found a way to make this religious duty into a way to wield power, and he didn't want to give up this office. So what did he do? He found and arranged a way to give that office to his family members. And Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is the beneficiary of that nepotism. What do all of these men have in common? At least we could say this they want to gain more. They want to grow their position. They want to move by their own desires. But the one thing at the bottom of it all that they all share in common is an allegiance to a firm and unbending rule, which is this. Do not lose. Do not lose what you have. Do not lose your status. Do not lose to anyone else. Do not lose. And then we're introduced to this man, John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist say in this time and place, amidst all these power brokers? Well, what John the Baptist proclaims are the words of the prophet Isaiah. Let's remember those. Here's what he says Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. Beautiful poetry, it seems. But these are not harmless metaphors. Because what are the towering high things? What are the crooked ways? Well. We've just been introduced to them. The high and towering figures have names like Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate, Herod, Lysanias, Philip, Annas, and Caiaphas. It's their crooked ways that are to be made straight. John the Baptist proclaims the message that those who seek their own gain at any cost, who only seek to build themselves up, stand in the way of Christ. They are opposed to him. Now, sometimes I can be a little bit of a skeptical person. So I get a little skeptical here. I'm like, you know what? John the Baptist, who's had some success branching out on his own, this message, this really works with his brand. This is why the people are coming to him, right? This would help, it would seem, to build up his constituency. He doesn't even need a focus group to tell him that this will work. And so it's not just the words of John the Baptist that are crucial. What really clinches this is John the Baptist's action. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to follow it. I came across a piece of art that captured this mesmerizing figure of John the Baptist in the pivotal moment of his life, where these words took flesh in him. I want to share this with you and ask you to just kind of look at it with me a little bit. This comes from the St. John's Illuminated Bible, a magnificent piece of art, the entire Bible. And this is the baptism of Jesus. But who's there for us right in the foreground? The figure of John the Baptist. Let's just look at him for a moment. Notice which way his feet are pointed. There's no question. Out of the frame, in our direction, away from the action behind him. Look at his hands. His right hand is laying passively at his side, but his left hand is cupped open in the direction of the way he's going as if to receive this future. But it's his head that really speaks to me. His eyes, really, look at that. This moment, it seems, is either when he's pulling his head forward for the final time, having just looked back, or he's just beginning to glance back for the final time. In either event, it is clear to us from this moment captured in this art that John the Baptist knows what is behind him. He sees it. And what's behind him his life's work. In that background, distant to us, you see all these people, all these figures gathering around in that water where not 30 minutes ago or an hour ago, John the Baptist was in the center of it all. These are the people from the capital city of Jerusalem, from all throughout Judea, and all these regions around the river Jordan that came to listen to John the Baptist to submit themselves to the work of his hands. And now, what are they doing? They are flocking around that single golden figure in the middle of the water. That's Jesus. This is the moment when John the Baptist chooses to lose. Now, he appears large to us. But that's just a trick of perspective, because he's given to us closer to see. The truth is, in his action, he's saying, he must increase, I must decrease. I've come to see this as our common Christian call. To flip the perspective. All of those people who flocked to John the Baptist, who came there to the River Jordan, they saw him as the man in the center of it all, the one that mattered. But he flipped it. He said, not me. Him. For my dad, it looked like his life would be measured by his successes. But he flipped it. And his life became measured by his sacrifices for his children. Sustained by the Eucharist. What will that mean? For you. For me. How will we flip the perspective. And choose to lose. It's tempting, always tempting, to measure our lives according to our successes. But success, it turns out, is not one of the names of God. Sacrifice. Is. When it comes to our careers, what are they all for in the end? How do we choose to give them away? Or the things that we create, how do we learn to let go of the control and give them to the benefit of others, possibly even without profit or even thanks? Or what about the people that we love? How do we free them to be themselves and not just who we want them to be? All of that begins by daily sacrifices in small ways, so that when the pivotal moments of our lives come, we are ready to lose and to lose on purpose in obedience to the call of Christ. The power of the world is set on gaining and winning and refusing to lose. But the power of Christ is grasped in giving away and in choosing to lose. That is how we claim our Christian identity, through sacrifice, losing on purpose. Thank you. We'll